taught him how to talk now. He can Elliot, talk now. Elliot. Look what he brought Elliot, up here all by himself. Elliot. What's he need this Elliot, stuff for? Elliot. E.T., can you say that? Can you say E.T.? E.T. 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 Be good. Be good. I taught him that, too. You should give him his dignity. This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Phone. Phone? He said phone? He said phone? Can't you understand English? He said phone. Home. You're right. That's E.T.'s home. E.T. Home phone. E.T. phone home. E.T. phone home. E.T. phone home. That movie came out in 1982. It was the very first movie that I ever saw in a real movie theater. I cried. I think there's just something about the desire to be home, to feel like you're at home that like every single one of us we get, we understand, right? There's this deep innate longing that all of us have for home. Uh, I remember um, the first time that I really left home. I was 18 years old. Looked like this. Yeah. So uh, when you're 18 and you've got a mustache like that, you know you know some things, right? Like you, you got the world in lockdown. So at least that's what I thought. Uh, my parents seemed to disagree with me. And I had graduated high school and was interacting with them. And let's just say that our interactions weren't always pleasant. So I had decided I was going to stay home from, co- uh, from going away to college and uh, live with my folks and go to community college for a year. Uh, by the time that the first semester had ended, it was very clear to both of us that I probably ought to leave the house and go away to college. So uh, we called uh, one college that I was hoping to get into. Uh, they reaccepted uh, uh, my application. And then they said, but sorry, we don't have a space for you. And I was like, ah, oh, no, like I can't make it like another like six, nine months at home. The Monday that classes started, uh, we got a phone call and they said, hey, a bed's opened up. Someone that was supposed to be here is not coming. Uh, if you want it, it's yours. How quick can you get here? So I think that was around noon, one o'clock. Uh, we called my dad who was at work. My mom helped me start packing and literally we packed up whatever we thought I was going to need for a semester. We threw it in our 15 passenger van. We had a big family. And my dad that night drove me down to Ohio. Woke up early in the morning, went and met with the registrar, signed up for classes, dropped off all my stuff in the dorm room. Uh, I went to class and my dad uh, left to go home. My roommate uh, was not back from break yet. I'm not sure why, but I had the room to myself that very first night. And uh, I remember um, 
unpacking and starting to put stuff away in drawers and making my bed, and, uh, and I was trying to fall asleep. But even as an 18-year-old kid who couldn't wait to get out from underneath his parents' rules and this prison that felt like that they called home, I, I found myself with tears welling up in my eyes, longing for home that first night. I think all of us get that longing for home. Even if we didn't grow up in great homes ourselves, uh, maybe even more so, we have a desire to feel like that place that we fit. I actually think that this is uh, the human condition from the very beginning of time. In fact, uh, Genesis actually describes the first humans, Adam and Eve, and they rebel against God. They don't do the one one thing that God asked them uh, not to do, they do. And, and so they wind up breaking for all time our intimate relationship with God, and they lose home. They actually have to leave the garden. And the human story since then has been our desire to find home, to look for home. Uh, we often as humans look for home in all the wrong places. The biblical story mirrors the human story, but the biblical story actually comes a little bit different. The biblical story tells us about the God who is continuously looking for us to welcome us home. I think that God designed us, created us with the need for home. Now, when I was in college, though, uh, I could still get a bummer ride with a friend. I got back for uh, spring break, and I think I was able to, in succeeding years, be home for, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas break and all those things. So it wasn't like I had completely lost home. Um, but I do remember the time that I felt like I actually lost home. Uh, I was 28 at this time. Uh, I've been married for three, little over three years at that point. Uh, Brenda and I had actually moved from Chicago to Grand Rapids. We bought our uh, very first house. We were living downtown in Heritage Hill 20 years ago when we could actually afford to live in Heritage Hill. <laughs> We, uh, we loved it. It was great. We had moved in, been there about a month. And I got a phone call from my dad. Um, my mom had told my dad he's the one who had to make this phone call to me and my brothers and sisters. And he was calling uh, to tell us that uh, he and my mom were getting a divorce. Now, now, I knew that they had struggles in their marriage. I'd been out of the house long enough to recognize, right, uh, you think your family's perfect until you leave the house, and then you realize, wow, we're kind of dysfunctional. I'm afraid of what my kids are going to think in a few years when they leave my house. So I knew that things weren't perfect, but I was honestly pretty shocked, surprised that my parents were actually getting a divorce. I, I was out of the house, though, for a while. At this point, I was already married, making our own house, our own home. So I will say at the time, like, I was disappointed, and I was kind of hurting for my, for my mom and dad because I knew that that was not going to be a fun process. And my younger brothers and sisters, even though pretty much all of them were out of the house at that point, uh, all that, that would be out of the house were, were, were out. I still knew that it'd probably be tough for them. But for me personally, like I didn't feel like, didn't like really hit me. I was bummed for sure, but I don't know that I was feeling it personally. That is until about six months later. I uh, see my dad called, I think in June. And here it was December. And uh, my wife's mother had, had passed away a couple years earlier. Her dad lived in Philadelphia. 
So it was a long drive. We didn't get out there to, to see him as often as, as we'd like. And so Christmas was always my house, my, my family's house. That's where we went. That was home, right? And home is that place where like when you're there, they love you, they accept you for who you are, not for what you've accomplished or what you've done, right? Home is the place where they love you just for who you are. And so you feel like you can be your own person, like just live in your skin. You don't have to put on airs. You don't have to pretend to be something that you're not. You just get to be, and they love you. Now, it doesn't mean that my parents didn't care about like how I acted or how I lived. Of course they did. In fact, that was one of the greatest ways that they showed me love, the boundaries that they put in place, the discipline that they offered me. That showed me that they actually loved me, the ways that they would challenge me when I wasn't living up to my potential. But I still knew that home was the place that even when I wasn't living up to my potential, I would still be loved. And that first Christmas came, and I felt like I lost home. My parents were living in different cities, different houses, and it was never about the house. I mean, we had moved when I was growing up, lived in a few different houses while I was growing up. So it wasn't, it's not the, it's not the place, but it was the space. It was the space that was occupied by family, by my parents. It was the space that provided that sense of safety, that sense of belonging, that sense of love. And that felt like it was gone. And that was really the time that I felt like I had lost home the thing that we all desire. Uh, The truth is, is no parent, as awesome as your parents may be, can ever give you that thing that your heart desires fully and thoroughly. Many do a wonderful job, but no human being can ever hold the weight of home. Now, maybe you're like, yo, somebody needs to tell this preacher boy, it's Easter. Why is he telling us all these depressing stories? He's got E.T. up there talking about his like, parents like losing home for him. Like, what's up? Yes, friends, it is Easter, and it is the day that we celebrate. We celebrate the fact that Jesus died, was buried, but on the third day rose back to life, right? We celebrate Easter because it's the resurrection. It's the day that we are reminded that even things that look dead, even things that are dead can be raised back to life. It's why we celebrate, which is exactly why I think E.T. and my story about losing home is exactly why Easter matters. Uh, You see, Easter is the reminder that the resurrection is how Jesus opened the door for us to come home. The resurrection is how Jesus opened up the door so that we could be welcomed back home to experience home in the way that our hearts deeply desire. Um, It's been a crazy year, right? I feel like pastors say that way too often. But it's true. It's been a crazy year. Uh, You know what's interesting to me? I was thinking about this. I think we've probably spent more time in our houses this past year than probably possibly than any other time in human history, honestly. Uh, we, we have begun to live our lives in our minds rather than in our bodies, right? You have meetings on Zoom. You do school on Zoom, right? You FaceTime with your family and friends. We live in a virtual world. We're in front of screens all the time. We're doing stuff online all the time. We find ourselves living in our minds 
rather than in our bodies. And it's funny because we've spent more time in our houses, and yet if I were to ask you my guesses, most of you would say, but it hasn't really felt like home. Now, I don't mean simply like you've been with your family. I just mean it feels like something's not right in the world. Part of that is because we have been so disembodied. We do almost everything online and virtually. We buy our groceries that way. We order coffee that way. We buy stuff uh, um, from Amazon that way. Like all of that stuff is like we're living there when we are intended to be embodied people. There's a reason that Jesus was physically risen from the grave. That his body began to breathe again. The flesh and blood began to pump again and move again. We need that. If God designed and created humanity... It's not just some random, meaningless accident. Then only God can truly provide the home that we're looking for. If this whole, like, human thing is just a meaningless, random accident, then I guess it really doesn't matter, right? But if it's not, if there is a designer, a God behind it all who cares and loves then he's the only place, the only one who can actually give us that home that we long for. And again, I'm not talking about a place. I'm talking about a space, a relationship, an engagement with another person who loves us unconditionally, who offers us forgiveness and grace and mercy, who sees us at our worst and still says yes. What I'd like to do this morning is uh, look at two texts. Um, We're going to start in John 14. It's a story Jesus is sharing with his disciples. Then we're going to look at another really famous story, one of my favorites, that I think makes a lot more sense in light of the resurrection. If you have your Bibles, flip open to John chapter 14. Now, uh, as you're turning there, the, the disciple, his name was John, who wrote this basically story or what we call a gospel, good news about Jesus. It's just about Jesus' life what he did, how he interacted with the disciples. John was the youngest. We think John was probably somewhere in like 14, 15, 16 when he first started following Jesus. So he actually wound up living longer than most of the rest of the disciples. And he remembers back on these things that Jesus taught, and he wrote them all down so that we could know. And it's really fun if you read the various gospel accounts from different disciples, uh, you will continually see how the disciples don't really understand Jesus fully. Like, they get most of it, but there's still things that, like, don't fully make sense. And they write that in their, they're like stories. Like, you're following along, you're like, they, they don't get it. But they write it in such a way that after the resurrection, all this stuff that they didn't quite get before, now it all makes sense. So here in the Gospel of John, verse 14, or sorry, chapter 14, um, Jesus, it's Thursday night, just before Easter, so last Thursday, okay? Jesus is hanging out with his disciples. He knows that he's about to be uh, betrayed by Judas. He knows that he's about to be crucified on the cross. And he's having a conversation. This is where they share the last meal. And Jesus has told them, this is the third time he said, I'm going to die. And they're like, no, 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 you can't. No, that's not right. Jesus, like, we know that you're home for us. Like, you can't go. If you go, like, we're really in trouble. And Jesus is like, look, I have to. I have to go, I have to die, but I'm going to come back. And so Jesus is trying to comfort them because they start to realize, yo, something's up here. Like they could smell it. They could feel it. Something was coming. Something was different about this week. 
the events. And so Jesus is trying to comfort him. Verse 1 of chapter 14, do not let your hearts be troubled, he says to the disciples. You believe in God? Great, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you. Or if that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Jesus says, look, I have to leave. I have to die. I'm going away, but I'm going away to prepare a room for you in my father's house so that you can be with me. I'm going to come back. I'm going to get you. Jesus is already talking about the resurrection and a second coming. And he says, I'm going, but I'm going to prepare a place. Like, it's going to be home. You know the way to the place where I'm going, he says. Thomas, it's usually called Doubting Thomas, which is a pretty unfortunate nickname. But Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, look, it's not about a thing. It's about a person. If you want to experience home, Thomas, it's not about where you go. It's not about a place. It's about a space, a relationship. It's about me. I'm the way to get home. Um, there's another story that Jesus tells that once we read it in light of the resurrection, it brings some things I think, powerfully to bear on an Easter Sunday. Uh, we see it in Luke chapter 15. Uh, this is a very famous story. I'll give you a second to turn over to Luke 15. <coughs> Excuse me, I don't have COVID. I have allergies. Bad, bad thing to have during COVID, though. Luke chapter 15 is a, is a famous story that Jesus tells. Uh, we know it as the prodigal son story. Uh, it's one of my favorite stories, but it's also a story that a lot of times as Americans, we kind of lose some of the, the woe factor, wow factor, crazy factor when we read it. Uh, Jesus loved telling outlandish stories. I mean, like, like insane kinds of stories where it made people just be like, no way, all right? And the reason he did is because he wanted to help us begin to understand the outlandish love that God has for us. So, Luke chapter 15, starting verse 11. Jesus starts to tell this story. He says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to, the father, or to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, this is one of those times where uh, we don't quite get it. Because we don't live in the ancient Near East, in Israel where um, shame and honor culture is the norm. We don't live in a shame and honor culture. Jesus did. And so for a son to come to his father, there's two things that are happening here. One, the son is basically saying to his dad, Dad, I wish you were dead. Okay? Because that's the only time that you would actually get the inheritance. To demand the inheritance, and to demand it, not even ask for it, to demand the inheritance was the son saying in front of everybody, Dad, I really wish you were dead. In shame and honor culture, to say that to the patriarch of your family would have been a devastating faux pas for the entire community. 
not just the son, not just the dad, but the entire community. Shocking. Like, honestly, the people that were listening would have been like, this is definitely a made-up story because that would never happen. What's even crazier is the second piece. The father does it. He actually, it says, divides up what he has. He gives what would have been rightfully to the younger son at his death. He gives it to him in his life. We don't know exactly what the younger son does, but he must sell some of it, gathers up whatever he can carry with him. And we find it says that not long after that, verse 13, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So the son goes off, and he's party city, bro. I'm serious. Like, he's got, like, some new J's. He's got a Gucci belt. All right, your boy's rocking an MCM fanny pack. Like, he is living high on the hog. Like, he is out partying every night, going to the clubs. <laughs> like, he's buying drinks. Give me another round. You never want to see that again, do you? I understand. I'm sorry. I did not. That was, I did not plan that. And I should not have He's out there, and he's acting like a fool, all right? He's spending money left and right. He's got friends out the waz left and right until the money's gone. Everybody's your friend when you, like, are buying drinks, when you're paying for stuff. But then all of a sudden, you start to realize, who are my real friends? And find out he has none. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. This one also goes over us as Americans. Because, like, we got a lot of, like, hog farmers. I had a friend, her dad was a hog farmer when I was growing up. But for a Jewish person to have to feed pigs... Pigs were like the dirtiest of animals. They didn't eat them. They didn't keep them. They made you unclean. You couldn't worship God. And now here he is. The least clean thing is the only thing that he is allowed to take care of. He has nothing. Not only that, but the very pods that he's feeding these pigs, basically trash. It's the leftovers. Which pigs are pretty amazing. They can turn trash into bacon. It's a pretty awesome he wishes, could I just have that? Could I just have that trash? And like I said, we don't get it. So I was trying to think, like, what's the, like, closest, like, equivalent to us, okay? It'd basically be like if the only job you could find was you had to walk from gas station to gas station cleaning the gas station bathroom, and the only food you were allowed to eat was whatever scraps got left there, all right? So, like, the dude that was sitting on the pot eating them Fritos, like, you could get the little crumbs out of the bag. Like, that's, like, that's probably the best way that I can describe. I know that's gross, right, Rachel? She just gave me a face like, oh, you didn't need to. That was too much. Probably. You're probably right. But that helps us begin to understand what's actually happening here in the story. When he came to his senses, verse 17, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him. And now he begins to rehearse what he's going to say to his father. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Now check this, this is so good. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. 
he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. This is another major faux pas. Esteemed men in the community did not run. You would not hike up your robe and go running. But this father, who's actually scanning the horizon, we don't know uh, how often, but it, it almost gives us the sense that every single day he goes out to the edge of town and just looks, hoping, please, son, come home. And when he sees him, it says that he's filled with compassion. In spite of all that the son has done, he's filled with compassion. He hikes up his robes and he goes running after him. And he throws his arms around him and embraces him and gives him a kiss. And, and this is when the son begins to say what he's been rehearsing over and over again. Father, I've sinned against heaven, against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants. Father, I've sinned against you and heaven, and I'm no longer worthy to be called one of your, your son. I want to be one of your hired servants. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he can even get to the last part, the father stops him. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to party. They began to celebrate. I think there's three things in view of the resurrection, that we need to understand about the kind of father God is. The kind of father who welcomes us back home. The first thing is that God has not turned his back. I don't know where you've been. I don't know what you've done. But way too often, I think we assume if we're not perfect, if we don't have everything together, God's like going to have his back turned to us. We already screwed up. God's got his back turned. But that's not at all what we read about. We read about a father who is coming to the edge of town and looking. He sees the son before the son even sees him. He hikes up his robes and goes running. God is scanning the horizon for you. You need to know that. God is not far away. God is near. God is looking. God is searching for you. The second thing is that God is not angry. Way too often, I think we assume God is just out to get us. He like sees that we're not perfect and he's just like so frustrated with us, right? Because that's what we've experienced. Like if, if we're not perfect, people get frustrated with us. We don't do things right. And we get frustrated with other people. What, you messed up by order? Ugh! But that's not God. The text says that he's not angry. Rather, he's filled with compassion. God is filled with compassion for you. I don't care where you've been, what you've done how you've messed up. God does not have his back to you. He's scanning the horizon. God is not angry. He's filled with compassion for you. And the third thing is that God is not stingy. God is not stingy. God is lavish with his gifts for you. Can I just tell you guys this? All right. Way too often, I think people view Christianity as like this thing, like if I were to actually give my life to Jesus, like go full in, like Full stop, not afraid of anything. I'm like, I'm 100%. I'm going to give my everything to you. We're afraid, I think, many of us, that life's going to suck a little bit. Right? Like, man, I won't have as much fun. I won't get as much stuff. Like, God's like a joy killer. Like, I'm going to have to do this and this. People are going to think I'm weird. Da, 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 da. Like, I don't want that. Friends, can I just tell you that that is the exact opposite of what God wants to give you? Can I just, I'm, like, I'm, 
I've experienced, like I'm not talking about this from like an academic, like this is sits in my brain somewhere. I'm telling you this because I've ex- God wants you to flourish. And I'm not saying you're going to be like rich. What I'm telling you is you're going to experience home in a way you've never experienced before. Kind of place where you are loved and cared for, where all of your needs are met and way often even your wants are satisfied. A place where God's going to allow your life to flourish so that you can become a better person than you were before. God is not stingy. God is not trying to squelch your joy. God is lavish with his gifts of love, of purpose, of meaning. This is what God is like. And it was the resurrection of our Lord Jesus who actually opened up the door so that we could walk into home, so that we could have home with God, with Jesus. If God is the one who created us, then he is the only place we'll ever find home. Um, I met a gal who goes to TLC. She's been coming here for, I don't know, six, nine months, something like that. A couple weeks ago, I got a chance to sit down and just hear her story. And uh, I asked her, I said, uh, Anna, would you mind if, if we shared your story with TLC? I think it's such a powerful story. I'd love to be able to share it. And, and she said yes. And so this past week, we sat down and, and uh, we filmed her just sharing her story. And I'd love to be able to share it uh, with you today. I can't solve this or fix this or make this go away or um, seem to do the right thing. My name is Anna, and this is the story of how God welcomed me home. I grew up in a loving Christian home, went to church every Sunday, had a pretty normal childhood. I said the prayer, accepted Christ when I was four or five, pretty young, was the the classic good Christian girl. My faith walk throughout high school then was just like, okay, what is what are all of the right choices, what is objectively true, and do those things and don't do the bad things. But very much felt that I had to kind of maintain my salvation status by not failing. Uh, I was doing really poorly in school, so I felt like I was kind of a failure in that front. I, I wasn't connecting at church very well. Um, I. Uh, was wrestling with this porn addiction and uh, on top of everything discovered that I was attracted to women which was uh, scary as well and at that time kind of really started to question where was God why was he leaving me to try and fix all these things myself Um, why weren't things changing the way I thought that they should this thing of like you're someone I thought was supposed to protect and take care of me and you don't seem to care and I'm kind of just trapped. Kind of that that tipping point, like how do I um, specifically submit my particular form of sexual brokenness to God? Like I can't manage all of this on my own. I can't fix that or make that stop and I can't seem to achieve perfection. I can't continue to live like this. I can't keep trying to save myself. 
I knew that this was not sustainable. So I was in that season of kind of searching. I was in this Bible study. Um, and there was one week that a lot of this stuff had kind of come up. And so I hung back afterwards and uh, was talking to uh, Lori Creek, who was, who was running this group. And was just kind of starting to talk to her about a lot of these feelings of, of not really feeling like I, I belonged or, or fit and this disconnect between um, kind of my head knowledge and, and my heart experience of who God was, what is, what is actual love <laughs> and, and grace and what does that look like. And she asked, well, do you want to pray about that and maybe kind of express some of that to, to God? And I was like, but I said yes, and um, she like opened in prayer. Just all of this anger I thought I had at myself and at uh, other people and different circumstances all came out at God and was very much went back to more of the root of a lot of these things of where are you? Like, do you see, like, if you're God, you know everything that's going on, you know me, you know how I'm feeling about all of this. Um, you see what's going on and you're not doing anything. You're just leaving me here to try and figure it out on my own and I can't do it. I can't solve this or fix this or make this go away or um, seem to do the right thing. I don't even know what that is anymore. And you are not anywhere around. Lori asked, can you imagine a, a safe place? I took a minute to imagine myself uh, just like in heaven, like very warm and empty. There's like nobody watching me or like making subtle judgments about everything I was doing or saying. I was just, I was just alone and quiet and I imagined him kind of just coming up behind me. And in just, there's a very like quiet, gentle way, just like wrapping his arms around me. Without him saying anything, I felt very understood and very loved in that moment. And there was just this kind of wave of peace that, that washed over me. Lori asked, do you think you could give Jesus maybe one of those pieces, just a little piece of, of that, that pain and that shame that you've been carrying around. In my imagination, I kind of turned and looked at him. I was holding on to him, I was like, would you, would you give me just a little piece of that? Can I hold some of that for you? It seems like you're holding a lot and I'd really like to carry some of this with you. And I was like, okay, I felt just like a huge weight lifted off my shoulders. Lori closed us in prayer. I, I turned to her and I was like, wait a minute, you, you saw that, right? Like, that was all real. Like, Jesus was here, like, in this space with us. And she was like, yeah, that's what he does. Like, he's, he's real. He wants to be a part of your life. And he shows up. And that was just, it was a huge turning point. That's just a, a major change in how I, I see God and how I see myself and how I 
live my life. Like, he has access to my entire self and my heart. I am able to feel like I am fully, like, loved and known. I mean, he is that community and that, that home. God isn't mad at you. Like, he's not waiting for you to get yourself to a certain level of okay. Uh, he, he's just waiting for you to invite him in. When, when I finally in, invited God in, that changed everything. Do you know what I love about Anna's story? It wasn't about her getting good enough or working harder to be good enough. It was about her willingness to turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, will you come in? Will you come in and take over? Take over my heart, take over my brokenness, take over my successes and my failures. Just will you come in? And that's the kind of father we have. That's the kind of God we have. That's the kind of God who welcomes us home. You see, Anna knows that Jesus is real in the same way that I know Jesus is real. Anna knows Jesus is resurrected and alive today in the same way that I know that Jesus is alive and resurrected today because he's still speaking to us. And friends, that's what I want for you as well. Today is an opportunity to be welcomed home. For some of you, you already know home. You've been following Jesus for a long time. You love him. Uh, today, your response is to praise him, to say thank you for what he's done, what he went through, his resurrection, how that has been applied to your life. But I think that there's probably some others. Maybe, maybe you're sitting here and, and, man, you just feel like God is saying something. God's doing something. You feel it in your gut, in your chest right now. What I'd like for us to do is I'd like for everybody, just, I just want to take a minute. I just want to allow God to speak. So I'm just going to everybody close your eyes. You can bow your heads and just say, God, if there's something you need to say to me today, I'm willing to hear. I think for some of you, You've never given yourself to Jesus fully. Maybe you've been around church. Maybe you even kind of knew the same way Anna did. But you thought it was something you had to do. And you've never said, Jesus, I give you myself fully. Today's the day that maybe he's calling out to you to come home. Reminding you that he's scanning the horizon. He has been. That he's filled with compassion for you. That he wants to lavish you with his presence. If that's you... This morning, I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you that you would open your heart up to Christ, inviting him in, accepting him. And if that's you, I'm going to ask you to take a risk. Everybody else, if you just keep your heads bowed, your eyes closed. But if that's you this morning, I'd love you to raise your hand. I know that's a risk, but I want you to raise your hand so I can see, so I can pray for you. 